From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 216 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. It's um, unfortunately here. It's a uh, skunk loving time. Mm. Now, all I can tell you is, is that in Bambi, when flour was Twitter pated, well, I don't know how that forest smelled, but around here, it um, I came home from work and there was quite a whiff in the air of uh, the skunks and all of that as they attract their. Their mates and all that. Uh, That's going to be a long spring. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've said it. I've said it before on this show. I I don't know why it would have come up, but I do believe I've said it. But I actually, it's one of the things I do miss about Pennsylvania. I miss miss the smell of running over a skunk. And I know it's disgusting, but it's just one of those things like it. It takes me back to home, takes me back to driving in a certain time of year. Where it just was unavoidable. They already ran over the carcass. And you're like, oh, how can it still smell that bad? Oh, I miss it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, maybe you need to talk to the Magic Candle Company about uh, making a skunk smell yeah, candle. I mean, they could tie it into figment, you know, with the That's skunk true. smell from Journey into Imagination. It all works out. That's very true. Yeah. So. Anyway, well, unfortunately, we have to start out the show with a couple of obituaries. It's been a little while since we've had to do that. Uh, the first one is Tony Walton. Uh, he was an Oscar and Tony Award winning um, production and costume designer. And, of course, we probably know him best for his work on Mary Poppins, but also for all that jazz and guys and dolls. He passed away on March 2nd, 2022 from a stroke, and he was 87 um, years old. Uh, we also may know him because he was once married to Julie Andrews. Um, they met as teenagers when she was in a stage production, and they were married in 1959, and both he and Andrews are working on Camelot, on Broadway, and they met Walt Disney backstage, and he had already offered Julie Andrews the role of Mary Poppins, but Walt was so impressed with Walton that he hired him as a costume designer, set designer, and visual consultant for uh, Mary Poppins. Now, Walton and Andrews had an amicable divorce in 1968, and they remained close friends and continued to work on projects together. And they have one daughter, um, Emma Walton Hamilton. And Walton was awarded an Oscar in 1979 for his work on Bob Fosse's Guys and Dolls, three Tony Awards for Pippin, House of Blue Leaves, and again for Guys and Dolls. He also received an Emmy for Death of a Salesman. He was also nominated for an Oscar for Mary Poppins, Murder on the Orient Express, and The Wiz, and earned 16 Tony Award nominations during his career. 
So Tony Walton is survived by his first wife, Julie Andrews, his second wife, who's an author, Jen Leroy Walton, and daughters, Emma Walton Hamilton and Bridget Leroy, and five grandchildren. So he had quite a career. I, you know, I, I don't mean this as any insult to Julie Andrews herself, but... Uh, I mean, you could almost make an argument that her her first husband was more highly decorated than even her in terms of uh, the prestigiousness of of what he accomplished. I I I knew about him, but I didn't. I, I don't think I knew about him that much. Um, mm-hmm. I, granted, I do have one of Julie Andrews' books uh, sitting on the bookshelf collecting dust waiting to be read, where I'd probably find out more about him. But wow, what a, what a career. I mean, just just impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And he spoke at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Unfortunately, it was before I was hired by the Diz. So it was in these days, I did not take notes, mm-hmm. the presentation. But he was there to talk about um, his work on Mary Poppins and, and seemed like just a very nice guy, very talented um, person. So um, so we definitely, all of us at the Diz send our condolences to his family. The other one was Tim Considine, another person who I had met. Um, he starred, a, a lot of folks might remember him when he started in the television show My Three Sons, but Disney fans probably remember him most for Walt Disney's Spin and Marty um, series. And he passed away on March 3rd. He was 81. Um, he passed away at his home in Mar Vista, Los Angeles. And... Um, so, and, and another, another, um, resource said he passed away on March 4th. So I don't know if he, if that was the date it was announced. Um, he began acting in 1953. He made his debut in the Red Skelton movie, The Clown, when he was 12. And he also had small roles in the movie's executive suite and her 12 men. And he appeared with his future Spin and Marty co-star, David Stollery, in that film. He also appeared in Unchained in the Private War of Major Benson. And Tim Considine's father was a movie producer whose credits include the classic Spencer Tracy, Mickey Rooney film, Boys Town. And his mother was a member of the famous Pantages theatrical family. So, Tim said his family didn't encourage his desire to be an actor, but they permitted me to be one. So in 1955, Considine appeared in his first major television role as Spin in the Disney television serial The Adventures of Spin and Marty, which aired during the Mickey Mouse Club. He also played Frank Hardy in the Walt Disney's The Hardy Boys and Frank Abernathy Abernathy in the Annette serial. And Considine's other Disney projects include the Shaggy Dog and the Swamp Fox serial, and that aired during Walt Disney Presents, that television series. And in 2006, Considine was named a Disney legend. Now, at the time Spin and Marty was being cast, a Considine family friend who was an agent suggested that Tim try out for the show. And Tim's fondest memory of the audition was the afternoon he spent playing softball with Disney show producer Bill Walsh. Um, He said, I don't remember the reading, but I do remember playing softball with him all day. I didn't want to do the part of the snotty rich kid. I wanted the cool part. And so his agent went to the studio and said, he wants to do it, but the parts have to be equal. 
And they agreed. And I had no idea he had done that until later. Now, Considine may have been best known, though, for starring as Mike Douglas on My Three Sons. And he would star on the long-running show for its first five years from 1960 to 65. And of course, you might know that he, Fred McMurray, was the star of that. So he was reunited with Fred McMurray in that, because Fred McMurray was also in The Shaggy Dog. And after My Three Sons, Constantine would go on to star in episodes of Bonanza, The Fugitive, Gunsmoke, Ironside, Legend, and Simon and Simon, all huge television shows in the 60s and um, even into the 70s. But, Craig, you might know him. For his most famous film role, and it was one of his shortest. In 1970, he played the shell-shocked soldier who gets slapped by George C. Scott's General George S. Patton in um, Franklin J. Schaffner's Patton. Oh, yeah. 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 And Considine's other films included The Warring Dobermans and Sunrise at Campobello. And his last on-screen role was in 2006 um, in the film um, Ray of Sunshine. So he retired from acting in the early 1970s, and he became a professional photographer. And he wrote several books about cars and photography, including American Grand Prix Racing, A Century of Drivers and Cars in 1997, and Around the Clock, The Yanks at Le Mans in 2018. And he also published essays in the New York Times Magazine. And I heard him and Dave Stollery speak at the Walt Disney Family Museum back in 2011. Again, that was before I was taking notes and all that. And what was nice is, is first of all, they were still really good friends. The, the friendship had lasted since their boyhood. They both had a love for cars. And um, David Stollery was the shy one. Tim Considine was the more outgoing of the two near boys, but it was sort of their love of cars that connected them together. And, um, so it was great. They were both very comfortable in their skins. And, you know, they had, they talked a lot about, um, their time working together and on the shows and then their passion for cars, because I, because David Stollery, I think went on to actually design cars and all that. So, um, Considine is survived by his second wife, Willett, whom he married in 1979, his son, Christopher, his sister, Erin, his brother, who's an actor, John Considine, and his two grandchildren. And Considine was married to Little House on the Prairie actress, Charlotte Stewart, from 1965 to 1969. So, again, our condolences go out to the Considine family from all of us here at the Diz, but um, two folks who passed away that really brought a lot of enjoyment to, to us Disney fans. Yeah, agree. Agree. Yeah, yeah. And and for, you know, a little trivia in the Toy Story film, I think it was the first one, remember Andy was wearing a Triple R Ranch um, shirt, which of course is the, uh, is the uh, ranch that Spin and Marty went to. So, um, because David, La- uh, John Lasseter was a fan of the Spin and Marty series. So the so. legacy lives on even more. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Well, speaking of, of these folks being at the Walt Disney Family Museum this week, I thought I would talk a little about, uh, about two events 
uh, they call these the happily after hours events because this was during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, when all of the events were online. And so I attended two talks that I thought I would share. These were members only talks. And the first one was back on December 12, 2001. And this was an event with film critic and author Leonard Maltin. And so the introduction is directly from the Walt Disney Family Museum website for the event. It said Leonard Maltin first wrote about Walt Disney at the age of 16 in his magazine Film Fan Monthly. He expanded that material into a book, The Disney Films, first published in 1973, with updated editions in 84 and 95. I think I have a couple of those in my collection. And in 2000, published by Disney Editions. He later produced and hosted the Walt Disney Treasures DVD series. His most recent Disney essays appear in the Tashin book, The Walt Disney Archives, Film Archives. So um, he is best known for his widely used reference work on Leonard Maltin's movie guide, its companion volume, Leonard Maltin's classic movie guide, and his 30-year run as a film critic on television's Entertainment Tonight. He teaches at the USC School of Cinematic Arts, appears regularly on Turner Classic Movies, and hosts the weekly podcast Malton on Movies with his daughter, Jessie. His other books include Of Mice and Magic, A History of American Animated Cartoons, Hooked on Hollywood, The 151 Best Movies You've Never Seen, and The Art of the Cinematographer. And you can find out more about him at um, leonardmalton.com. So, Craig, I am sure you are very familiar with Leonard Maltin and his oh, work. No, for sure. He's um, he's one of my favorite film critics. Uh, I, I used to listen to his podcast literally nonstop. And um, uh, it, it was weekly listening as soon as it, it dropped. But then I kind of gave it up for after a little bit just because... Um, kind of changed up the format and didn't enjoy it as much so uh but you know beyond that obviously his impact on disney throughout the years seeing him on those uh walt disney treasures sets that that helped out a lot you know he he did the introductions in the beginning for the treasures from the disney vault on tcm so it was awesome seeing him on there and, you know, just seeing him on TCM in general, it was always a treat anytime he'd pop up. And I even, I, the, not the first, I think, but the second D23 Expo I attended, it, it might have been the first, doesn't matter, but I had a chance to meet him because he was the uh, host of the, the, one of the panels they did on, uh, music in in uh in disney cartoons and so after that was over i had the the chance to actually meet him and uh get my photo with him so i've been a fan of leonard malton for quite a long time oh well that is wonderful yeah that you got to meet him well the reason that they had him at uh, on this event is because he had a newly released memoir um starstruck my unlikely road to hollywood so i don't know if you have that one craig i do not know no yeah i don't either um and so he was talking he said he's a baby boomer when he was a boy and he went to the library there was only one book 
And that was, this is one I actually do have. Bob Thomas, The Art of Animation, which he said was a tie-in to Sleeping Beauty in 1959. And he said it was a very good book because it didn't talk down to children, because it was written for children as well as adults, but it didn't talk down to children. So he watched Walt Disney every week talking about his films and going behind the scenes. And he said that was a giant window opening for him. So um, so they had a question there about what kind of films he was interested in and all that. And he said he was interested in all kinds of films. When he came home from school, and, and I can identify with this because I grew up in the same generation, um, he watched Laurel and Hardy, The Little Rascals, The Three Stooges, and tons of non-Disney cartoons, like the Max Fleischer and Warner Brothers cartoons, because television at the time was like a living museum of movies. It was an intro to Film 101. And I've, I've talked about that on past episodes where t- t- the television stations were desperate for content back in the 50s and 60s. And so, and especially if you had an independent station. Um, th- so they were running all these old films and all the really, really old classic um cartoons yeah and all that so um yeah he used to talk about that on his podcast all the time uh the mm-hmm. the different uh animated shows that he would watch three stooges uh you know all all the comedy troops all the guys together um the laurel and hardy even later abbott on and, and costello and just, abbott yeah. and costello all all of those um it's it and it, it, it always fascinated me hearing that because you know while he is so he's uh, like I feel like he's known for two things. His his stance on why Casablanca is the greatest movie ever is like one that people use if they want to have that as the opinion, saying that's the greatest movie ever. They they use a lot of what Leonard Maltin has said about it in order to defend their own opinions, and then also also the fact that he is such a uh, he he is so outspoken for Disney and the stuff that mm-hmm. has been made throughout the years in disney but like it it comes with a background in history far beyond just what just these things that he really talks about all the time right now it, it it's, it's a lot deeper than that yeah yeah so why does he say casablanca is the best film oh michael we'd need an hour <laughs> well, that might be next it's, week's episode. It's everything. I'll try I to find the film. the one episode where he like recapped it perfectly. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's his. He thinks it is the best movie of all time. Mm-hmm. So, well, now his film fan monthly newsletter sort of thing was an old. Um, it was it was on old movies, and it was and started out being inspired by other people's articles. And then as time went on, he wrote more and more original material, but he wrote about like Buster Keaton and Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and other stars from the silent era. And, and a, a lot of these were on television still. And he produced his magazine with a mimeograph machine and mailed it out. And he said, you know, he's who talked about how you should all be so happy today. You don't have to use a mimeograph machine. And I thought in my early days of teaching, we used mimeograph machines and to create our handouts. And oh, what a pain that was. So um, we called them ditto machines. So. Anyway, um, so the Malton on the Movies podcast, um, they, they, they asked, how has it turned, 
out to be a family affair with Jesse. And he said it was very positive. He said it's a partnership. Um, she helps him stay current more than he would on his own. And it wasn't part of her career path. And uh, recently she gave birth to a daughter. So, um, so he's enjoying being a grand, the role of grandfather too. So, and then it said, was there another question? Was there a time he felt particularly starstruck? And he said all the time, but the trick is to not show it and to be professional. And so he feels very lucky to have met all these people though. Uh, he said he was blessed to call Diane Disney Miller a friend, and he knew Ron Miller. And he has a chapter in his book, um, Getting Close to Walt. And he got, he never met Walt, but he said it was, he got close to Walt through meeting those that he worked with. And, and uh, that's sort of the point of, of our show, connecting with Walt, is we do try to help you feel close to Walt because we talk about his projects and the people that he met and, uh, you know, and things like that. So, so I, I could identify with, with that. Um, people, he said, people ask him if he could go back in time, who would he want to meet? And he always said, Walt Disney is like the big one. And, uh, and then he was asked about the, well, the first time that he met Diane Disney Miller. And he said, um, his father's, um, centenary was her father's centenary was coming up and she was worried people were forgetting about him because he was no longer a visible presence. So we talked about that. They, people were starting to think he was like um, Aunt Jemima or Betty Crocker or that fellow <laughs> on the Quaker Oats, uh, you know, container that, that he didn't really exist. He was just, uh, you know, it, it, I don't know. What would you call it? Craig, he was just, um, I mean, more of a, uh, there's a name for those. um, No, no, no. There's a name for the, the characters that are created for a brand. Like he was just an image, you know, and not a a real person. Like a mascot, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. So, um, anyway, so, um, so anyway, so. He said, though, that Diane Disney Miller was not a public person, but she agreed to be on panels and seminars. And he met her at one of these at Disneyland. And he was on the panel, too. And it was chaired by his um, friend, Tim O'Day. And Tim asked, what myths or truths would you like to lay to rest? And Diane said that he's not frozen. But the problem was people didn't hear what she said because there was talking and laughter in the audience. And so they weren't, she couldn't be heard over all of that. So Leonard asked her to repeat what she said. And when she said that, they said the place went nuts because it was for the first time it was heard with authority that Walt had not been frozen. So, and I I was at the museum once when this was brought up and she talked about it and she talked about, you know, how much pain um, that rumor caused and that they family had tracked it down to where the rumor originated. And it was with a, a publication in England that it first originated and then it just picked up steam from there. And um, so on the day Walt passed, um, Leonard Malton said he was homesick from school and that he heard that Walt had died and it hit him hard. And he then thought, I have to write something 
for his fanzine that he had created. So he decided to do a filmography on Walt. And he had a Manhattan phone book, so he looked up Walt Disney Productions, and it was located on Madison Avenue. So he made a cold call and asked for someone in publicity. And he was connected to a woman, and he explained what he wanted to do, and she said, how can I help? And he said, that's not something you usually hear from anyone in publicity. And um, he said, he explained to her what he wanted to do. And he said, I have the information that I need. She says, okay, well, what can I do for you to, to help? And he said, do you have any photos that I can use? And he said her name, and, and she provided him with photos. And she said, he said her name was Arlene Ludwig. And she was the daughter of Irving Ludwig, who was hired by Walton Roy to run Buena Vista Productions after they sort of broke off from RK and all that as their distributor. And he said she was a lifelong um, employee of, of Walt Disney Productions. And he said they're still friends today. So, and it all originated with that phone call, that friendship. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a neat story. So. Now, most of his experiences as a youth, he said, were positive, except he said, Craig, you'll like this, except with Universal Studios publicity. <laughs> he, <laughs> he asked for some photos for Charlie Chaplin's last film, The Countess from Hong Kong. And the publicist said, we don't think your uh, publication is an appropriate vehicle for, pu- for publicizing Universal films, but we'll send you a couple of stills. And he thought, okay, they were going to give me what I wanted anyway. So why did they have to insult me? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I I, I guess that's true. So I I feel like it's, I yeah, I that's that's a tough one. Uh, No comment for me on this one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, so then he asked about his book on the Disney films, and he said um. Why they they asked why do you think the Walt Disney films um, required such a comprehensive book? And he said, well, the Warner Brothers were actually four brothers, but they weren't on TV every week and they didn't make personal appearances. And he said, and neither did um, Daryl Zanuck of 20th Century Fox or any other studios studio heads or movie moguls. But Walt Disney made himself a public figure especially when television came along. And there, he said, and there was a continuity to Walt's career. And he said, um, by the 1960s, there was a second generation working at the studio, and they were the children of those who had worked with Walt and Roy. And he said, so when you talk about the Disney films, there's a continuity, there's, and there's a finite number. And they were all made at the same studio after they moved to Burbank. And they still owned all the films because that was something very important to Walt. And he said, and everything was very self-contained. So he could address the films, you know, from that point of view. And then they, um, then they got into the Disney Treasure series. And, uh, he said, um, not all of it was rare. He said, um, but the world, the, the World War II cartoons had been shelved and they had been labeled do not touch since, um, we were no longer at war and we were allies with the Japanese and, um, and Germany. 
And so they felt, Disney executives felt it was no longer appropriate to show these. And Leonard Malton disagreed. And the person that he pitched the idea to agreed with him. So now others had tried to do it before to get the World War II films released, but it was his Disney Treasures project that got them released. And that's one of my favorite of the Disney Treasures series. Yeah. Is is that one? And sometimes that goes for a pretty high price. I noticed on eBay. Uh, They always, all of them fluctuate for the most part, it seems like, because every now and then I'll, I'll be looking at them and be like, Oh, this one is, I can get it completely factory sealed for $30, which seems Mm, bizarre. And yeah. And then it's usually just like a fluke. And then someone realizes what they have. And then it's that the price jumps all the way up to the upper end of a couple hundred dollars. It's like, gosh, this, I really wish we could all just agree that for people who want to get rid of it, their used copies, at least let's set like one price. That's like fair. I know, Mm -hmm. I know the edition sizes. I'll kind of changed, uh, how, you know, as it went on through, but it's, it's tough. It's tough to complete the collection when it just jumps up and down in price. I know, I know. And I would like to complete my collection. I haven't been very aggressive with it, but, um, I would like to. So, um, Anyway, and then he was asked about what are some underappreciated Disney films. And he said, so dear to my heart, he said that film was very personal to Walt. And because it recalled Walt's childhood in the Midwest at the time, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. And this is also reflected on Main Street at Disneyland. He said it's a very charming film. It was going to be all live action, but someone thought animation would be expected from the Walt Disney Studios. So they worked in a couple of animated um, segments into that. That is a, a nice little film. And, um, and also it tied in Walt's, um, railroad hobby and his, um, miniatures hobby. And in fact, uh, if you go to, to, um, One Man's Dream at Disney Hollywood Studios, that Granny Kincaid's cabin that's on display there, that is, Walt built that for so dear to my heart. So, um, so there you can watch the film and then go see the cabin there um they talked a little about his uh class at usc um the school of cinematic arts course uh he said he's this is a course that's been running for a really long time he's not like the first instructor for it because he said like steven spielberg and george lucas and all that if took the film under a different instructor back in their day. But he's taught like Alfred Hitchcock's granddaughter and George Lucas's daughter in there. And then he was asked, um, what advice would he give to someone in film criticism who wants to get started like in film criticism or film history? And he said, find a way to do it. If you can't find a job, which isn't easy to do because of social media, because now everyone is a critic. So people are less interested in reading a professional film critic. He says, try try to write for a club newsletter or a blog. or And I thought this was an interesting one. See if your local public library wants to do a screening series, and then you write the notes for it. 
Um, but he said you have to in, you have to invent your own way to use your passion and desire to talk about, write about, and learn about film. I I, I agree and disagree with him on that. I think that it, it is it is true that people are more harsh towards critics, um, especially movie critics, more than ever now, and. You know, it's just so easy to say, well, nope, they don't know anything they're talking about. I saw it and liked it. And I feel like that is a narrative that is more present than ever. But, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like people, even though they disagree, they are still reading it. I mean, we see the same thing with what we do with, with Disney and, and all of, you know, restaurant reviews or, experiences that we review people are still paying attention listening reading watching a lot of times i feel like they do it just so they can hopefully disagree with the the reviewer but i I will say his other points about finding the other outlets i mean that's obviously um you know it's that that is important Uh, figuring out your way to to express yourself um even if it's not in what was traditional before, but everyone can start a YouTube channel. Everyone can start a podcast. Everyone, everyone can start a club, a book club or movie club with friends where they can just talk about it and, mm-hmm. and share. There's, there's lots of avenues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, and that's true for almost any creative venture. Yep. Mm-hmm. Too, so. And then, then there, then there were um, guest questions. Um, so they asked his thoughts on Disney's um, new reboot of Zorro. And he said all the elements are there for a great story, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be done again. He said the vintage television series with Guy Williams is wonderful. He said there's no reason someone shouldn't tackle it again if they do it with heart and the values of the story. So... And then um, he was asked, were any other sets in the works before the Disney Treasures um, series was discontinued? And he said no, but he's been sketching out another series, Craig. And it's titled I'm No Fool, which, and of course, you all know, this was a Jiminy Cricket series on the Mickey Mouse Club. And he called it uh, A Spoonful of Sugar Learning. And he would like to surround it with the educational films Disney made only for schools and civic organizations and release it. So whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know. But boy, I'm on board with that. Yep. Me too. (laughs) They asked about um, what his favorite Disney movie is. He said for animated films, Dumbo. He said it is... um, it's just i can't even read what i wrote here but he said just said that so much is packed in the 64 minutes it's just like it's like unpretentious that's what i wrote he said here and then he said overall the original mary poppins he considers that waltz masterpiece i don't know if he's ever talked about that on the podcast that you listen to uh, maybe a little bit. It, it's been years. It's uh, five, six years. Mm-hmm. So, and then they asked about um, how was the transition from writing, you know, like uh, the paper media, let's say, to television. And he said he had to learn to write for the ear. 
um, because that's very different. He said, you sort of have to learn how to write short declarative sentences for television. And he says, and it takes a little while to get used to that. And then they asked, what um, contributions to Disney is he most proud of? And he said the Disney Treasure Series. He said it was his um, idea, and it lasted nine years. It produced 37 volumes, so we all know now how many we have to get into our, our collection. And he said he still gets enthusiastic responses for them. Then he was asked, why did it end? And he said he's very open about this. He said he originally pitched the series to Dick Cook. And then when he, he, when he was suddenly dismissed by Bob Iger because they didn't see eye to eye, there was no one left to champion the series. So, um, and he said, and then, you know, Disney never released it on iTunes or Blu-ray or Disney Plus. So it just sort of, you know, just sort of died right there. So, um, so he, they asked about uh, the, his prediction on the future of movies. I mean, are theaters dead or are they dying? And he said he's cautiously optimistic. He said that it's, you know, it's proving now that event films like the Marvel films show people want to see films as a show, social experience. And he believes that theaters will see people in large numbers again once we lose our fear of the virus. So, and then, um, and then he was asked, what advice do you give for those who are struggling with their goals? And he said, don't give up. And he said, that's the best advice he can give. Not, and he said, those aren't empty words. It, if it means your goals are grandiose or somewhat unrealistic, it may mean you need to readjust them to make them more realistic and something you can achieve to conclusion. Um, he said, but don't stop in your tracks and scrap everything you've achieved. Okay, and he went on and said that um, Walt failed multiple times. Uh, you know, he couldn't sell cartoons because they were considered filler, and he did it anyway. No one wanted sound cartoons, but he made Steamboat Willie, and then they all wanted more Mickey Mouse. But Walt wanted to try something new, so he made the Silly Symphonies and the Skeleton Dance. They didn't want it until they saw them, and then they wanted more. Then he made cartoons in color. Well, no one wanted it due to the cost, and he did it anyway, and then everyone wanted them in color. Uh, He said time and time again, Walt was rejected, even by his brother Roy, who looked out for him, but like, you know, Roy didn't believe in the nature films, but, you know, Walt persevered. So then he asked, um, how has um, screenwriting changed for animation films from Walt's times? And Leonard said he didn't think it has changed. He said Pixar uses the same template. He said it's a group effort, even if you only see one screenwriter's name, you know, in the credits. He said, um, you know, st- start writing, you know, they start writing, they'll scrap ideas, they get new suggestions, you know, you start again. And he said, um, that he was asked a little about his um, course that he teaches. And he said, it doesn't just focus on making films, because it's open to students of every discipline. So he has student athletes in there, you know, all, all kinds of people. So it's very broad. Um, 
So then they asked, when I'm reviewing a film, how do you prevent going in with preconceived notions? And he says, and that's the challenge. So he said he doesn't watch trailers, even in theaters. And he said he literally, because he said, you know, a lot of times trailers give away key points of the film. So he literally will close his eyes and and put his hands over his ears in order to not hear what's going on in the trailer when he's in the theater. He won't read any articles about a film. He won't, he won't listen or read any interviews, um, cause he wants to stay neutral and see the film cold. And it was the pandemic that gave him the time to write his life story, Starstruck. And that was pretty much the end of the interview there. That sounds like a good interview though. You know, very thorough. It was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It was really interesting. I learned quite a bit from that. The next one I want to share, completely different. And this was interesting because this is somebody in film, a role that you normally don't hear a lot about, and that's the casting director. And so this was, again, I'm going to read about, I'm going to read this from the Walt Disney Family Museum website. It's This is Joint Disney Executive Vice President Feature casting, casting Randy Hill as she discusses overseeing live-action Disney and 20th Century Studios productions, including the casting of Marvel Studios' Iron Man in 2008, Thor in 2011, The Avengers in 2012, Disney's Maleficent in 2014, Cinderella in 2015, The Jungle Book in 2016, Beauty the Beast in 2017, Aladdin in 2019, The Lion King in 2019, Mulan in 2020, Cruella in 2021. And this was originally presented on June 4th, 2021. So it says the upcoming Jungle Cruise film. <laughs> so, and it says uh, Randy Hiller serves as the executive vice president and feature casting at the Walt Disney Company, overseeing um, large live action Disney and 20th Century Studio productions. So, she's an award winning casting director, casting several independent and studio features. And, um, and it goes, her credits include Academy Award winner Crash in 2004, Academy Award nominated in the Bedroom 2001, Miracle in 2004, Iron Man 2008, Thor 2011, Avengers in 2012. She's a member of the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences, the Television Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Casting Society of America, CSA. She has received two Emmy nominations, 16 Casting Society of America Artius Awards nominations. I had to look this. I'd never heard of this society. I had to look it up. And, and it's for casting directors. And three Artius Award wins. In 2009, she was declared one of 25 power casting directors by Backstage Magazine. And she said, and right now, she's also um, casting for the Disney Channel. So, anyway, so... So she was asked, Randy Hiller was asked, how did she break into the industry and what drew her to casting? And she said that she worked for a talent agency in New York and worked for several talent agents and realized that that wasn't where her talents lied. And so she, as part of that job, though, she had to attend comedy clubs and then attended a production company that was producing a comedy show for PBS, and they didn't have any money. So she used her contacts at the comedy clubs to um 
to tape auditions and then was asked to tape a pilot. And she realized that's what she loved doing. So she interviewed with two of the biggest casting directors at the time, and she got the job. And her big break was as a casting associate on the film Twister, because I immediately thought that she cast the cow. (laughs) <laughs> that goes flying by. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so they. Um, she was asked, "How has social media affected casting?" She says, "It's made it so vast that you never feel you've seen everybody, no matter how hard you try." Um, she said, "With Disney, we have very specific things that we need, like someone for Aladdin." So they were casting for Aladdin. They were casting in countries all over the place and flying people in, like from Jordan and and all kinds of, of countries. Or um, for an upcoming basketball film, and they said the name of the character. I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out how to spell it. But they needed a six foot eleven Greek Nigerian for that film. They found someone. It wasn't quite six foot eleven, but I guess he got close. He said that um, they don't have a direct casting portal, and that's something she's been working on, but they do use social media as much as possible. And um, they they can't cast all their movies in-house at Disney because they're so big, so they have to audition, and they have to cast worldwide for films. So they said because Disney is so big, there's always someone who can help them, and... um, and always, you know, they, they're always troubleshooting and supporting each other and all that. And um, and she said the good thing, too, about social media is that it repeats. So they will post something on social media that they're casting for. And then people repost on Twitter or Instagram. And that makes it easier than the old days when, you know, they went around posting um, flyers and stuff. And... um she was asked, where's the oddest place where you didn't expect to find a rising star? And she said that they find people everywhere. They find them in schools, in drama schools, in theaters, in commercials, on social media. She said they have a team that scours TikTok and looks for people. Uh, probably now all of our listeners are going to st- you know, get on their TikTok accounts, I'm sure, and Start and see if anybody's watching them. Um, so the way it works is they see the full script and then they will write a character breakdown and then they'll meet with the director or producer to get their vision. And so the job of the casting director is to, um, throw out a couple of, you know, a couple of out of the box curves to get maybe to get to see the director producer to get them to see the character in a new way um and 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 also to find them what they're they're looking for but they want to give them a couple of options different options out of the box options and they said um who gives the final say in casting they said the casting director narrows it down to a select group of actors. And it says, depending upon the film, a lot of people may have input, especially if it's for a beloved character, like when they were casting for Cinderella, which is my favorite of all the Disney live action films. A lot of people had input into the casting of those roles. And, and then they were asked, um, what are the challenges of the remakes of the popular animated films? 
And she said, it is terrifying. You want to make everyone happy and you want to make their childhood dreams come true, but you can't. Um, she also said some films are being modernized. So, uh, for instance, Emma Watson in Beauty and the Beast. I thought of you, Craig, when they brought up Emma Watson. Uh, in Beauty and the Beast was, was, <laughs> was a, was a smart maker own way woman, which was different from the original, um, character in the animated film. So you identify the basic qualities of that original character and then you build upon it. So, um, anyway, so that was, so that was interesting. Emma Watson comes up again later on. Um, then they asked, yes, then they asked who auditioned for a role that wasn't quite right and got another. And she said Naomi Watts auditioned for several roles, but she ended up being perfect for Aladdin. And then she said Tom Hiddleston originally um, auditioned for Thor, the, the role of Thor. And he put on, in a month, he put on 30 pounds of muscle. And she said, so, you know, we were so impressed with him. But he ended up being perfect as Loki. So he got cast as that. So that's interesting. Can you imagine Tom Hiddleston as um, Thor? I, I can't, but I'm actually intrigued by some of that talk because usually, like from the movie podcasts and stuff I listen to, um, it, it, there's it, there's usually a lot of uh, holding back, and I'm sure NDAs are signed about like people who came close or actors that were up for one role or another and didn't get it, but got on that. So I, I like when you get to hear those kind of details because it does feel like a true mm-hmm. peek behind the curtain. Yes, it does. And, and she said the talent rises. So, you know, and she said that one wasn't yours, that role wasn't yours, but, but yours will come in time. And, and, and then it was asked, how are younger versions of a character cast? Like when their flashbacks are used in the film or, or you know, like I thought of Cinderella, you know, when it starts out when the characters are children and then they grow up. And she said, you have to start with the original character. The, the actor, and then you cast for actors who maybe have similar features, but they, they don't have to be exact. Um, you, you just try to think, could they have grown up to be that character? And you also look for traits and energy to see um, if they have the character traits and all that that would show them to being, um, you know, growing up to be that character. And she said it takes about a year to cast. And so you start out with lists and then you lists of actors that you might want to consider for a role. And then you have to then determine, do they want to play that character? Um, then can we afford them? And then are they available? Because that's a big deal, too. And she talked about some that because they were working on other projects or they're working on a television series could could like the, the hiatus from the series fit in with the role, you know, fit in with the, the filming role, filming schedule. And sometimes people did lose out because they had commitments to um, other productions. So she said when, and also when you cast one character, you have to determine, do they fit in with other actors that you're considering for the other roles? And then she was asked, um, Randy was asked, what skills do you need to be a casting director? 
she said, watch a lot of TV and movies is important, but there's a business side of it. There's a lot of multitasking because so much is happening simultaneously. And you have to know what strengths actors have. And she said it's not glamorous. Um, you have to see people as people. And you have to give actors a safe place to create because auditioning can be nerve-wracking. Um, she said, also, when you audition a lot of people, she's talked about sometimes her film, you're auditioning like 10,000 people. And she said, it's exhausting because the people auditioning, their nervous energy is so high, you uh, you either absorb it or you try to buffer it for them. And you are exhausted by the end of the day. And she said the pandemic has made it more difficult because you have to audition via Zoom. And, uh, and especially, and that's difficult, especially when it's for a secret project like, um, Lucasfilm or Marvel. And so the, even the actors don't know what they're auditioning for. And then she said, so much of casting is done in the room because then you could tell them to play it a little more sympathetic, you know, or with a little more energy or something like that. And it's, and, 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 it's harder when it's over the internet. She said, and then it's even more difficult if there's an internet issue and maybe they can't hear you when you're asking them for direction or you can't hear them. Or, or like when you're trying to give them direction to play it more sympathetically and they can't hear you or you can't hear them. So that just added to the problems. And then she said, what is the it factor that, you know, we hear so much about? And then she said, that's hard to explain. She said, like Idris Elba, when he came to the United States, he was an unknown, but he had a charisma that just when he walked into the room, it was obvious. He said, it's, um, it's sort of, it, it, the it factor is sort of people have come into their own and they're comfortable with themselves. Um, she said, um, like Chris Hemsworth, he, being in Star Trek changed him. Um, you know, when he first auditioned for Disney, but then he did, st- he, he did fine. He was good, but then he did Star Trek, the 2009 J.J. Abrams film. And then he came back and it gave him a swagger because he had that self confidence and that made him perfect for Thor. And then, um, and then they said, what? And then this was a question from a guest. It was a 12 year old girl, um, who asked, what do you look for in a child actor? And she said, the Disney Channel is always looking, but she said they're usually looking for specific roles. And she said, and acting is very difficult for both the child and the parents because the parents have to be on the set at all times. But she said one of the most important things is you have to feel the role. And um, you can't just act it. You have to really feel it and absorb the role and really become that character. And, and she also talked about how acting is, can be really draining and difficult. Like um, if you're, if the character that day, if the scene you're... you're um, you're doing, it happens to be an emotional scene for the character. And you're doing, and I know this from my days, um, you might have to do that scene 25, 35 times in a day. And maybe you end up doing it like 200 times at one point with 
doing over shoulder shots and all that kind of stuff because you're not important enough to have a stand in. And, um, that's draining. That is so exhausting when you have to keep coming up with that same amount of emotion 50 times or something like that. And, and so imagine being a child and having to do that, much less being an adult. And she said, and there's a lot of waiting around on the set. It's not all parties. And that, that was sort of one of the reasons I think I've said this in previous episodes, why I didn't care for acting was all the waiting around. It, it is boring sometimes. And, um, the, and then she was asked, um, what's favorite film, um, that she assembled the cast for? And she said, miracle. The hockey hockey movie. She said it was a really a joyful time because you had hockey players, professional hockey players, non-professional hockey players, and actors, non-actors, and all this stuff. She said everybody was just so helpful and supportive of each other. And I really like that film. I think it's a good film. And then she said another one was casting Cinderella. She said... Um, Kenneth Branagh as a director, she said, is the best. And what, there was one role that was never cast in the film. She didn't say what role that was. But then, um, she said Lily, uh, um, Lily James originally auditioned for a stepsister because she wasn't available for Cinderella because she was on another project. Um, but they were thinking as they were still casting and casting for Cinderella and they were thinking, who have we missed? And they brought Lily James back in and they, and they tested her with other great actresses. But it's, it's, you know, it's all about your take on it. Um, they, they played it, they played Cinderella as too knowing or too bold. Like, well, I'm going to take the, the, the carriage and I'm going to drive it myself, you know, to the ball. And, you know, it was things like that. And Lily was the perfect mix. And then they said um, Richard Madden had just killed it in his audition as the prince. But he was working in the Canadian Rockies on a project. She couldn't remember what it was. And he got horrible frostbite on his nose. So he could never, they could never audition Richard Madden and Lily James together. So they were hoping, they thought, okay, we have to see if they have chemistry together. Yeah. So what they did was, and, and that was critical for this film, the work, that and the dress. The dress had the work too. Um, in my opinion. <laughs> but they, um, so what they did was they took their separate auditions and then, and then they, um, edited them together to see if it worked. And apparently it did. <laughs> but I thought that's amazing that that's how they determined if they had the chemistry to work together. So, um, and then in the dance scenes, they had a problem because they, you know, you know, that grand dress, they, uh, they, they both kept tripping over the dress. So they had to keep filming <laughs> the scene over and over again. That's great. And, um, yeah. And they said that there was a practice version for the screen test of the dress. And she said, like, every girl's fantasy was in that dress. So, and I know, um, like a D23, we, we were in, you know, we were in um, panels that talked about the making of the dress, but went into it. We've seen the dress in person and, you know, it is magnificent. 
And I, and I, I do think that if that dress wasn't magnificent, that would have hurt the film. The dress was a character. Yeah. I agree with I that. I think completely. in that film. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the USS Enterprise is a character in Star Trek, the originals anyway. So, um, now, and she said, when you're a big star, you don't have to audition for a role unless the director doesn't think you're right and you want to make a run at the role. And she said, and she's really impressed with actors who do that because that really is a very humbling experience. And you're really um, putting everything on the line when you do something like that. And when you're sort of trying to prove yourself to the director. Um, and then they asked about how much audition time do you get? Because she was talking about how they see hundreds of people in a day and they might see, they might audition 5,000 people for a role or even 10,000 people. So it's like you want to give them their time in a safe space, but you've got to move on too. So she said, if it's a big actor, you give them a little more time out of respect. But, and the more callbacks that you get, you're given a little more time each time um, for your audition. And um, she was asked about casting singing roles. And she said, that's a lot of fun. She said, Luke Evans' audition for Gaston, she said, was one of the most perfect. Uh, And then you'll like this, Craig. Emma Watson didn't audition. She was offered the role. Offer? Wow. Mm -hmm. I did not see that coming. Maybe I knew it before. No. Anyway, um, she's, oh, but there was a funny story when they were auditioning the singing roles for, um, Beauty and the Beast. It, well, they were doing it on the lot, the Disney lot. And because they have a piano player, a pianist who is always on the lot for these thing, kinds of things and all that. Well, it was a warm day. I don't know if the air conditioning wasn't working or whatever. They opened the windows, um, in the, in the room that they were auditioning in. So, she just imagined visitors driving on the lot or walking on the lot during that time are hearing coming out of windows all these songs from Beauty and the Beast. And she imagined that they probably think this is just an ordinary day where you walk through the Disney lot and you just hear Disney songs coming out of the windows. <laughs> she said it's not a daily experience. Um, well, there goes my entire impressions that I always had. I know. I know. Well, you and I have been on the lot. I, yeah, I remember music. <laughs> I remember birds landing you on do? people. Yeah, it's and and singing and the mice cleaning up yep. after us. All of that. We drop things. Everything. Oh, yeah, yep. It's true. Mm-hmm. And you have it on film, and then they took your camera away. Yes, so you yeah. couldn't film there. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that part actually is true. <laughs> said you couldn't film when we were there. Um, anyway. And she said, keep in mind, all the big actors started out in small parts. And she said, and you have to keep that if you want to get into acting. She said, you know, you might start out having maybe one line. Then maybe it's two lines. And then that leads to a slightly bigger role. And then maybe a, another bigger role. And And she said, it just starts to build and build and build. And she says, so she said, don't stop studying, acting, and don't quit. 
if this is really your passion. She said, but she said, you know, it auditions are so stressful. She said, and I, I do remember that. Um, each audition, really think of it as it's like creating a new resume and a new job interview. And we've all been through that. And it's emotionally exhausting. So, um, she said acting classes, though, are a bonus for everyone. And I've talked about this in previous episodes where I'm an introvert. But when I was a teacher in front of a classroom, or like when I did my presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum, if, like, I take, I pretend I, I do a different role. I pretend I'm a different person. And my role is that I am a teacher. And any fear I have about being in front of a group goes away. Because I'm not Michael, the introvert. I am this t- confident teacher. That is my role for that day. And in my job as a corporate trainer, that is my role. And that gets me through it. And she talked about that um, in public speaking. Pretend you're in another role to reduce your nervousness. So if you have to give a talk in front of a group, create another role for yourself. And... um and and then say I'm this is the role I'm acting in and it does take away that nervousness and taking acting classes does help with that and I that helped me um, my acting classes that I took when I was young helped me with that and and overcome that fear of speaking in a group or speaking into a microphone like I am now um, so I thought that was excellent advice for everybody. Um, and she said, you know, acting, some people find fulfillment in acting in community theater. And then they find enjoyment and fulfillment and money doing something else. So that might be your outlet in acting, too, is uh, is community theater, local theater, something like that. Um, and then um, they asked, and this is interesting because of some of the news in the last year of actors sort of getting in trouble on Twitter and, you know, social media and stuff like that. She was asked, do you have to take into account an actor's public persona when casting a role? And she said, you try not to, but if they're doing something really, really bad, especially if it's a Disney for Disney, it's hard not to because Disney does have an image. Um, but she also says too, you have to take it, but sometimes the public persona is important. She's, and her example was interesting. Jimmy Stewart, one of my very favorite actors. And, but she said, Jimmy Stewart would not have made a good Iron Man because of his persona, his speaking voice, his patter and all that. Robert Downey Jr. though, he's a quick thinker, a quick speaker, and that was perfect for that role. So it's not saying Jimmy Stewart is a bad actor by any means. It's just that he would not have been suited for the role of Iron Man. So, and Robert Downey Jr. was. And he also, oh, and she said when he auditioned, he actually sang. And he sang a song from Chorus Line. Um, what is it? Gee, I've got it. Do, do I've got, do I have it? You, but you know that song, Craig, whatever it's called. And, and yeah. Chorus Line is like her favorite yeah. Broadway show. And so, um, she said she would love to cast Robert Downey Jr. in a musical. Maybe they'll make a musical of Iron Man or like in, um, 
oh, what was the show where they had a musical of um, the Avengers? Uh, in Hawkeye, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe they would cast him in that. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. I thought that was really interesting because I only knew about casting directors from one side of it. And that's just something that we usually don't hear anything about in the sort of the world of, um, you know, cinema. Uh, no, I, theater. This one sounds absolutely fascinating. I wish I could have could have been part of it to hear more mm-hmm. because a, a lot of stuff in there that I feel like is like true industry inside information that you don't normally get. Uh, that's that mm-hmm. intrigues me. Don't always just want the fluff. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, it, it, it was very good, and of course, if you want to hear these panels, you can become a member of the Walt Disney Family Museum. Just go to WaltDisney.org and you can become a member online. They have all kinds of different levels, including student levels. So if you're a student and want to join, you can. And then you get access. They, they've recorded about 70 or so panels, 70, 75 panels. You get access to those. You get a different... um password every month in one of their emails and so that you can log on it changes monthly and you can log on and um watch these as well so um so it's a lot of fun they don't record all of them but they they record a a fair number of them so uh anyway and then of course when you're in san francisco you can go to the museum and see all the wonderful exhibitions and all that that we talk about so, but now it's time for this week in Disney history. Mine is um, an important one. March 13th, 1928. This was the infamous train ride from, from New York to California. Walt is with Lillian. This is after his, um, negotiations with Charles Mintz. We all know the story. He went there because Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was so successful and and Walt was there to renegotiate the you know the new contract and he was going to ask for more money and all that and this is where the rug was pulled out from under him Walt didn't realize he didn't own Oswald Universal Studios did and that Charles Mintz had hired all most of Walt's animators out from under him, and that um, except for just a, a, a very very small number that had stayed with him, like a couple, and then um, and that you know he you know he had nothing nothing left, and that, you know Charles Mintz said, "Oh, but I'm willing to keep you on," and he was reducing. Um, what he was going to give Walt for each film and all that. So Walt sent the telegram to his brother Roy, a Western Union telegram, leaving tonight, stopping over KC, which was Kansas City. Arrive home Sunday morning, 7.30. Don't worry, everything okay. We'll give details when arrive. So, of course, he stopped over at Kansas City to recruit a few more people to a studio. And then it was, uh, as the story goes, it was on that train ride home that Walt started to create a new character, looked remarkably like Oswald, except it was a mouse, not a rabbit. And um, 
legend has it that Walt wanted to name him Mortimer, and Lillian thought that was too stuffy, and that she preferred the name Mickey. And, um, well, that really is when history started for for Walt and Roy and the Walt Disney Company. Mm-hmm. So, that is it. March 13th, 1928, when Walt left New York, uh, with like not, his world had collapsed, and by the time he arrived in California, a few days later, completely new direction, new ideas, and basically a new company rose up from the ashes. Yep. Now a, a very a very important date, obviously, and it really puts mine to shame. Uh, so <laughs> I almost wish I would have went first again. I feel like this is a repeat of last <laughs> week because I think last week is when you, you know, I went with the softball and then you're like, oh, you know, the, the Walt or D23 started officially. <laughs> so, uh, oh, we're, I'm ready to go with mine if you're ready to accept it at some point. Absolutely. Everything is important. Uh, no, I, Michael, I promise you, mine is not important at all. So um, I chose this one sheerly because I thought it was interesting and I wish that it would be a bigger thing. But apparently in 2001, uh, the UK pavilion at Epcot ended up like having a big St. Patrick's Day celebration where it like extended on to not just like, you know, hey, eat at Rose and Crown and settle with that. But apparently it went bigger like they had Darby O'Gill there that was telling oh, stories wow. and a, a Irish dance club or school come in and actually like perform. And, um, you know, and then on top of that special food decorations, the green beer, green Sprite, like all, all of it. And, um, how wonderful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That would have been great. Exactly. That's my, my feelings completely on that, that like, why isn't this something that is done every single year? <laughs> it sounds. It should be the so whole month of March. I mean, I, I don't disagree. I, with I you. mean, yeah. this would be great. Yeah, I even yeah even a week. Even take the week and say like we're celebrating St. Patrick's Day for a week and have all these little special things with it. So I think I think that would be something really neat. And I mean, I I don't know if this happened yearly beyond it but i i know it at least happened in 2001 and like as i was reading through with other saint patrick's day stuff like i saw at one point in time like disneyland did a saint patrick's day parade and um you know i i'm not irish at all i think i'm like one percent but not enough that i would ever identify with it uh but like (laughs) like like most americans i still like pretending that i am on March, 17th. everybody's Irish on St. Patrick's Day. Exactly. So <laughs> I, I still celebrate it. So I'd, I'd be up for them investing more. And I'm sure there's a lot of critics out there that would be like, "No, it's just a celebration of people getting drunk." But no, it's 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 not. It, it is more than that. Yeah, some people are always going to ruin a good thing. But uh, you know, let let the ones let those of us who really like the extra food and and more of the stories that go along with it, let us be able to have those. And you know, let shove the drunks over to uh, Raglan Road at Disney Springs and, and leave them there. <laughs> oh, I do. I wish they continue this. And I don't know. 
somehow they could tie it into the Flower and Garden Festival, probably, mm-hmm. as part of the entertainment and definitely the food offerings. Yeah. Now, yeah. you know, you know, some Irish food and, and Irish soda bread. Mmm, that would be great. And, you know, Irish stew. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff they could do. Corned beef and cabbage, which I make every year. I've got to dig out my recipe. And uh, all that. Oh, my gosh. It's, that's a great one. I think it just makes me think I'm so sorry I missed it. Yeah. You know, I, it's so. it's something that, I mean, and granted, I also understand the side of it is that, like, well, you know, is it insulting to do an Irish festival at the United Kingdom Pavilion, since they're technically not the same thing? Probably a little bit. So let's, you know, just go down a little bit in between Canada and uh, and in the UK Pavilion and, you know, call it a middle ground and do something there. Yeah, well, you know. And then they can secede when they're done with the festival. There you go. <laughs> Okay. No, I think that was a good one. What fun. Thank what you. fun. And it's a good reminder we need to watch Darby O'Gill and the Little People this month. Yes, it is. So, yes, it is. Streaming on my, Disney+. Plus. That's a tradition. Yeah, that's my tradition every year. Okay, well, Craig, did you take a shot on your birthday in New York City last I, week? No, no. I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> I sip my uh my spirits i don't i don't take shots uh, anymore but uh well i i knew you went to hamilton so i wanted to make sure you know took your shot i i, I mean i didn't throw away my shot no i i celebrated hamilton <laughs> with the sam adams and okay <laughs> went that route so yeah i uh you know it, one of the things i'm starting to learn as i get older um and you know my my tolerance for alcohol is uh wavering different from before is i you know i used to be a big proponent of oh we're going to the theater you know it's, you gotta have your your glass of wine for the first act and then you have to have your glass of wine for the second act and then afterwards you know yeah you, you make sure you walk around whatever downtown area you're seeing your shows in and when you feel like you know and it, when it's responsible to drive again then then you go about your ways or back to your hotel if you're staying in the city you know how however it is but now I'm at that age and I do the same thing with concerts where I'm like, you know what? Why would I, why do I pay money to have a drink during the show? And then my brain gets like even a little slightly fuzzy with that one drink. I'm like, <laughs> I'm literally throwing away money to, to be like, yeah. And it's, it, it, it's happened. It's happened. So I, I try not to, uh, I try not to have anything as much as possible anymore when I'm seeing shows. Cause I'm like, this is my only time ever seeing this now or ever again. I kind of want to remember it all. I don't want to remember yeah, like, Oh absolutely. yeah, that glass of wine was really delicious. And yes, they did sing a song, but <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't go to Sardi's beforehand. And you know, <laughs> no, I went to another one of your favorites. Uh, we, we had a rush day. We basically, um, our, our day for shows was all condensed on a Wednesday double day. So we did like a 20 minute in and out meal at Junior's having soup because <gasps> it was cold. Oh. And, um, and then from there, did you have cheesecake? Well, yeah, that was, that was all part of it. So it was first okay, we had good. soup. We had soup at Junior's and then rushed to get 
over to a show and then as soon as that show was over then went to grab pizza and then on the way back from getting pizza then we stopped back at juniors again but at their their takeout window and picked up cheesecake to take back to our hotel room and then had cheesecake in the hotel room and then rushed out to the show and it it was a lot so a lot of food yeah we a lot of walking yeah, we ate at Junior's a couple times. One of the times it was that after a show, we walked to Junior's. But I felt terrible. There was a young man where uh, where I was teaching, and he was so excited. He and his sister were going to New York for the first time. And I told him all about Junior's cheesecake. And this was really before the internet, now that he researched it. He picked the wrong Junior's because there's one across the bridge in New Jersey. Two. He walked across the bridge to oh go to gosh. that one. That's insane. And I told him, you didn't find the one near Broadway in New York City? He said, I oh, didn't know there was one. I thought, oh, I felt so terrible. I, I can't believe that. I mean, I know there's uh, yeah. like it started in Brooklyn too. The originals in Brooklyn, but like I even yeah. even with that, like there's there's now no. Two I, that's in- where he went. He went. He went to the Brooklyn one. Oh. That's where when he crossed. He walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, at least that's exciting to say you walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. But no, there's yeah. there's it, there's two in Times Square, and so like the mm-hmm. first time we went, we ate at the one that was closer to our hotel and like that was <laughs> that was um you know it, it was fine but we were like huh it's i wonder why you know i i get this is a touristy thing and it kind of feels like it based on this but you know it's at least every now and then it's it's fun to be tourists and do the do those kind of uh restaurant experiences and stuff and then we stumbled upon a different one just by complete, you know, mishap uh, going down the, the wrong street this time. And so like, okay, well, we'll try out this one. And then it was like, oh, wow, this is, I understand now why some people say like, yeah, it's touristy, but it's really good because this time around mm-hmm. it's like, it was really, really yes, good. And the fact great. that they, you know, got us in and out in 15 minutes, um, I, I can't complain about that. <laughs> Yeah, they're probably used to that with being in a theater district area. Mm-hmm. So, um, speaking of, of sort of, since we've been on a movie thing, a couple of announcements were, uh, uh regarding movies were made. Um, you go to an AMC theater. You told me the one at Disney Springs is your favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about this new pricing scheme where they're, they're upcharging for big films like The Batman? I I mean I'll just say flat out it doesn't bother me because I use the AMC A list so mm-hmm. um, the fact that they up they will upcharge for bigger movies that actually benefits me in the long run because it means I'm going to get more savings out of having A list because I pay twenty five bucks a month for that so you know if it's if the price of Dolby. Uh, a Dolby movie at night used to be $21, but now it's like $23. It's like, oh my right there. goodness. I've almost paid for, I've almost paid for it for one month just by seeing one movie. So if I go see one more, I'm, I'm now in the green on it. So that's um, double what we pay out of here. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, the, so Disney Springs is, is, I'll, I'll just base it on that with since it's AMC and such. And it's, it's not the fairest one to really talk about with it, but at Disney Springs, it basically is you have the Dolby Theater, 
which is the, you know, that's the most expensive seats because that's the best screen with 4K and everything looks great. And then after that, we now have, I think, eight or nine dine-in screens, something around that, maybe nine. And so those ones are all at a premium upcharge, I think, for a night dine-in theater. It's like $15, $16. And then all the other seats, like the max you'll pay for that is like 12 And those are just your standard old-fashioned movie theater mm-hmm. seats. And so that's that's the pricing for Disney. But like it, it the next location that I go to... Um, they reconverted that theater into only recliners and it's such a nice theater. It's in a bad part Isn't of town. It nice recliners. Um, <laughs> I love, I love recliner seats and mm-hmm. I, I just hate that. I, I worry about is my car going to get broken into when I come back out to it? But it's, I mean, it literally it's, it's a daily occurrence that you'll, if you read like police blotters, like I do sometimes it's like, okay, new break in here and there. So it, it stinks for that, but the theater is fantastic. But like, the matinee price there is like $4 and the most expensive ticket is like $8. So I try not to go there because I'm like, well, if I go to this theater, I have to see like four movies to, to try to come out ahead. Um, depending on what time <laughs> of day I see them at. So, uh, yeah, that was my super long way of saying it's, I, I think it's actually, I, I think it's a good thing for the industry too. You know what? It's, we, it, it's going to, like we talked about in the one interview or like you mentioned in the interview that um, uh, with tentpole films, you know, Leonard Moulton saying that movie theaters will still exist because of big tentpole films. You know what? It, it, I think they deserve to be able to charge a little extra. And you know what? If the prices, if the prices of those are, are go up so they can make extra money and continue justifying making smaller movies then why not because then if the smaller movies are operating at a loss but it's okay because it's even and out then that that's fine with me you know it's it i I don't want it to go to a thing of only temple films and then everything else is streaming that's that's not a good thing so whatever they have to do to figure out the balance uh, i'm all for trying things yeah i don't know i don't i don't I'm not a big fan of it, but this one theater I go to, they don't have a, um, like, a, like the A-list, MC A-list that I've heard really good things about. They don't have something like that. And, um, it's called Cinema West. And I don't know why they don't start it. Uh, I guess because they don't feel they need to. They're a relatively small chain from what I can figure out. And then we have Regal and Century. And I tend not to go to our Century here in town, but, um, Regal's in the next town over. It's a little closer to me. And, um, they, they each have their own little groups too, but I tend to go to, it just depends what mood I'm in, which theater I go to. Yeah. So, um, and I I mean, we're the same. I don't go to just one. Yeah. And and you and I are the same in that, like, you know, I, 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 I go see movies by myself, you know, or I go mm-hmm. see it with Rhino um, <laughs> because he also has a list and will sync up and go see a movie at the same time. But um, it, it's very rare that I go to the movies with my wife anymore. So I'm approaching this as a person who is paying for, for one ticket. I mean, uh, if I was consistently paying for movies for my wife too or if we had a family and paying for the full thing i'd probably be a little bit more annoyed about 
the the tiered pricing for sure but with with the current situation of who i am and how i see movies it's it hasn't impacted me too much yet and i don't i don't think it would but who knows i i it's like anything with pricing as soon as you start factoring in other people kids yeah i i get why you get a little bit more uh more uh, tight with how you want to spend because money just doesn't grow on trees no no it's all especially nowadays yeah and, and of course i get the senior rate now <laughs> so good for my you. tickets are even cheaper I, yeah I, you so. know i put the prosthetics on every time before i go to the theater and they just they never <laughs> buy it mm. so Anyway, and Disney Plus is doing something that Bob Iger said they would never do. A lower subscription rate with commercials. Mm. They are introducing. I'm to, because they didn't yeah. meet their subscription goals, I guess. I, I'm okay with it as long as what everyone is fearing doesn't happen, and that's that the base price that it is right now for the service without commercials as long as that doesn't become the base price with commercials and then the you know the next the, the non-commercial version goes up from there um uh, that will annoy me very thoroughly i oh, i think given the state of what the company's been doing i think that's inevitable i i'm hoping i'm hoping it's not it's i i and i i i, I do think that that's probably what is going to happen and it's just it's it draws a line it means it means once again that they have more faith in their programming than i think they deserve to have you know it's they they still haven't had a massive breakout hit besides the marvel and star wars shows and i'm not saying that their stuff hasn't been enjoyable um but you know and i don't i don't count Encanto on there and I don't count some of the movies they've launched on there because that's that's a you know those those are like the Marvel in in Star Wars shows that it's not like these are coming out weekly it's not like Netflix where it's every every other day there's a new movie that's streaming on there for you to watch so these are these are tentpole things so until it gets stronger I I think they still have to watch their price point and how much they're asking. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, I wish that one of the things they would do is then let's have a little more content. Because when you see, like, when you you read the articles, what's coming to Netflix this month or HBO Max this month, there's a lot. The what's coming to Disney Plus this month, it's a handful of stuff. How about increasing the content and having more series? Basically, they have... One big series, a Marvel or Star Wars one, then nothing for weeks or months, then another big series, then nothing. And, you know, I think if they want to get more subscribers, then how about give us more stuff to watch? Uh, I mean, that is, it's a point that I was going to bring up at one time with us, because, you know, we used to every month. You know, at the end of, you know, at the end of like February or the first week of March, we would, we would inevitably do our, you know, what's coming to Disney Plus this yeah, month. Yeah, and, and I don't do it anymore. And no, no, because it's like <laughs> you know, March, not not a bad, not a bad month. In nev- like how it's ended up with March, because um, like you know, obviously West Side Story came out mm-hmm. and. Um, we, as I think it was last week on the show that we talked about that the, the, the uh, Marvel 
shows that were on Netflix have made their way or making their mm-hmm. way over to Disney Plus in March. Um, the cheaper by the dozen reboot that was some <laughs> uh, reason necessary. Yeah, a reboot that never needed to be made. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, there's that. And then another round of Mickey Mouse cartoons, the wonderful spring of Mickey Mouse. And then the first episode of Moon Knight happens right at the end of March. And like, that's it. And then everything beyond yeah. that is... Well, Turning Red. Turning Red. And turning Red, too. Also. Yes, sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I forgot about that mm-hmm. one. But then, I mean, in between, it's like, okay, more more National Geographic shows to push. And, um, you know, just, just little things like that that I'm... I, I know with some of like the kids shows and stuff, I'm just not the audience. So I, I understand that there's probably a lot of families out there happy about that. But again, it goes back to, it's not just families watching this. You need, they need a better balance. They need to pull from more of their back catalog and find a better blend for all audiences. Because at the mm-hmm. end of the day, while Disney might cater towards kids heavily in a lot of aspects, it is still supposed to be enjoyed by all audiences, not just kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So, And if your kids love West Side Story, let us know. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I, uh, I'm looking forward to watching that. Oh, and Free Guy, I'm looking forward to watching that, too. On there, I haven't seen that one. So, So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the different shows that I'm on on our Dis Unplugged podcast network. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And you can find me, uh, you not find me, but you can email me anytime, Craig at WDWinfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram at Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplugged.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>